welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have on Dr. Mikhail Sekaris. He's professor of medicine and chief of the division of hematology at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and former chair of the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee of the FDA. He's the author or co-author of over 400 manuscripts and 650 ex abstracts published in leading journals such as NEJM, Blood, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Nature Genetics, Cancer Cell, Journal of the National Cancer Institute, Journal of Clinical Investigation, PLOS One, and Leukemia. He's a regular contributor to the Well section of the New York Times, has authored eight books, including When Blood Breaks Down, Life Lessons from Leukemia, and his newest book, available now, is called Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. Welcome, Mikhail. It's good to have you on. What a pleasure it is to join you today. Thanks so much for inviting me. Absolutely. So before I start, let me just say that this is legit one of my favorite books of the year. And so you guys are going to find out why as we start talking about it. Mm -hmm. So just so much intrigue, so much wisdom and knowledge, insight in it. Uh, just it's amazing how far back it goes. And so what I want to do is I want to actually read a passage from it as we begin. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like the beginning, not the beginning, beginning, but this is sort of the beginning of kind of what we would call modern medicine. So Mikhail wrote, breast cancer has been documented in written records for more than 4,000 years, centuries before modern imaging techniques or autopsies revealed the inner mysteries of the human body. It was easier to detect than many other cancers because it wasn't hidden somewhere in the abdomen or the chest. Mm -hmm. But even though it arose close to the body surface, breast cancer often wasn't recognized until it had started eating through the skin, covering the breast, and in those cases was hidden from friends and even close family members out of shame. Back in the town's doctor's office, he shakes his head, pitying you and frustrated at the limits of medicine, particularly in rural parts of the country. He tells you that some cancers grow slowly, so maybe you'll be one of the lucky few, then instructs you on ways to hide the lump and mask the rancid smell of the ulcer expanding over it. The following month, a traveling medicine show with a performance trope comes to town, advertising Hamlin's wizard, wizard oil. A, page, a patent medicine and wondrous cure for ailments that range from toothache, rheumatism, lame back, hydrophobia, and pneumonia, all the way to cancer. Its cocksure slogan brags, there is no sore, it will not heal, no pain, it will not subdue. The oil works so well, the advertisement claims, that it can be used topically as a liniment or ingested. It is said, it is said to contain alcohol, camphor, sapphiris oil, clove oil, turpentine, ammonia, and chloroform, ingredients that seem more appropriate for a potent wallpaper remover than a medicine cure-all. Frankly, you don't have any other treatment options, so you hand 35 cents to the barker who stands near a case of this wondrous oil. In reality, the actual form of formula for this batch probably varies to include, aside from alcohol, whatever the manufacturers had on hand at the time. You swallow your first dose of the solution that night, Weeks go by, but despite your taking the nostrum religiously, the mass in your breast cancer continues to worsen. And now you've developed a gastric ulcer, which prevents you from taking in a decent meal. You lose weight, get weaker, and six months from the time the medicine show came to town, you die, either from the complications of breast cancer and for, or from the side effects of Hamlin's liniment. So this is incredible. I mean, so as Alan and I were just talking about it before we obviously started filming, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe this isn't so fair to say, but it doesn't seem like in terms of modern medicine, we're that far away from that kind of era. And so... <sighs> 
which is which is kind of not just a shame, but it's also kind of shocking considering how, especially where the with the way pharmaceutical medications and drugs are touted, it seems as though we have come so far. And it seems like these cures are literally just like in any doctor's office, you know, you just sort of you make an appointment and boom, you just get this wonderful treatment that's marketed to God knows how many millions of people. So, uh, Mikhail, can we start talking a little bit about that first in terms of like the history of medicine, not obviously going too deep into it, but the history of medicine in terms of where we were and kind of comparing it to where to where we are essentially. And then now talking about also the FDA and how it came about. Mm. Well, I really think you hit the nail on the head. And and uh, again, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your show today. Um, what a remarkable century it's been in medicine. And I basically cover about a hundred years, a little over, uh, that started with what was the creation of what would become the FDA to where we are today. And it really wasn't that long ago that we really didn't have um, medicines that worked. Uh, you think back to the 19th century, and I depict this scene with a woman with breast cancer, and eventually I get into the book uh, a much more contemporary approach to treating breast cancer, but that's about all people had. And in the 19th century, drugs didn't have to be safe. They didn't have to be effective. Their labels didn't have to tell the truth. And people who were selling these drugs to people didn't have to tell the truth. And it wasn't until tragedy after tragedy after tragedy befell people that it led to legislation that created first the FDA, and then the fact that the FDA mandated that drugs had to be both safe and effective in the United States. Mm. Right. So um, one of the, the first kind of tragic events that I talk about was um, in 1902, there were 22 children uh, in St. Louis and Camden, New Jersey, who fell sick with smallpox and diphtheria. And by mm -hmm. that point, we had recognized the fact that you could give kids vaccines to treat these infections, but there were no controls over how vaccines were manufactured. Uh, there were no standard plants that made vaccines and every single vaccine was like another vaccine as we would expect today with, for example, COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. uh, people did what they did and then they shipped the vaccines out. So vaccines were shipped to these kids, but they were contaminated with another deadly toxin, this time tetanus. Mm -hmm. So all 22 kids died, not from smallpox or diphtheria, but from tetanus. So this led to this groundswell of shock and horror. And eventually Congress passed what was called the Biologics Control Act. Uh, and then soon after the Pure Food and Drugs Act of 1902. But these laws were actually limited in scope and drug safety was actually left up to the manufacturer. Mm. Well, out of um, curiosity, uh, actually, sorry, uh, go on, I'll, I'll ask. No, 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 no. Um, and, and, you know, it wasn't for another 35 years that another tragedy would befall that finally launched um, Congress into action uh, to mandate that the FDA demand that drugs at least, at the very least, be safe. Mm -hmm. And so um, out of curiosity, uh, that came about because of, if I'm not mistaken, uh, thalidomide, correct? Uh, that that caused a, a pregnant women who ingested um, that medicine to give birth to children with uh, birth defects, like maybe missing limbs or maybe missing ears. And uh, this sort of sparked uh, outrage and sort of led to further development of the FDA, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, is that right? 
Yeah, so thalidomide, the, the entire thalidomide story is absolutely fascinating. And one of the fun parts about, about writing this book is there are stories you kind of hear throughout your career, and then, you know, you put it in print, you got to make sure it's actually true. So I got to research some of these anecdotes um, that I had heard and find out where where truth lay. And the, the story around thalidomide is really fascinating. It was marketed in Europe as the first safe sleeping pill um, and was also considered highly effective at treating pregnant women with morning sickness. And the drug was so popular, it was used almost as regularly as aspirin in some countries, not in the US, in Europe mainly. So with this success in mind, uh, there was a company that wanted to distribute it, it into the United States market, a company called Richardson Merrill. Mm. And they anticipated a quick approval by the FDA. They thought this is going to be a no-brainer. It's used all over Europe. It's not a barbiturate. And back in the late in the 1950s and then early 1960s, um, people were very concerned about the effects of narcotics and particularly barbiturates um, as uh, being addictive and having a lot of side effects. So they were looking for alternatives to those sorts of drugs. And that's why thalidomide became popular in Europe. So the company actually had a warehouse full of the drug ready for sale and ready to distribute. But there was a new employee at the FDA, uh, a woman named Frances Oldham Kelsey. Mm -hmm. um, and this was her very first drug assignment at the FDA. And she was asked to review all the data, but she had her concerns um, because of the lack of long-term toxicity studies on thalidomide and because what she was hearing was almost too good to be true. So she wrote about her concerns in a letter to the company, but instead of providing well-designed clinical trials supporting the safety of thalidomide, the company responded with what amounted to individual testimonials. So in other words, they had people who basically said, this drug is great and submitted it to the FDA and expected the FDA to approve it based on that. Mm -hmm. This only heightened her concern. She really worried that they were hiding something. So she refused to allow thalidomide to move forward for approval and continued to request additional data on the drug. And she later made the comment that the company was really disappointed in her because Christmas was apparently the season for sedatives and hypnotics. And they kept telling her um, they really wanted the drug approved because um, if they got it on the market before Christmas, that's when their best sales were. So they kept pushing, 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 and she kept resisting, resisting, resisting. In the meantime, in Germany, and this is where the story gets really fascinating, there was a German physician, his name was Wittekund Lenz, um, and he ran basically kind of like a pediatric intensive care unit, and he kept seeing all these kids born with birth defects. It was like an epidemic of it. And at the time, there was um, a lawyer who came to him and said, you know, my, my child, Jan, has been born with two short arms. So can we get together and try to figure out what's caused this? So they basically bundled into um, this lawyer, Schulte Hillen's Volkswagen, and they drove around the German countryside looking for people who had a kid who was born with some birth defects. And these kids were hidden away. So what um, Schulte Hillen did was to actually bring a photo of his son, Jan, with him to kind of gain the trust of people. And they would then go into these folks' houses, go to their medicine cabinets and discover bottles of thalidomide. And mm -hmm. that's how they were able to tie thalidomide use to 46 children born with limb deformities. Mm -hmm. They went to the German press, this blew up, and eventually 
the company that was manufacturing this drug in Germany was forced to stop selling the drug. Well, lo and behold, it turns out, of course, that Oldham Kelsey was right in preventing sales of the drug in the US. And while thousands and thousands of kids were born with birth defects in Europe and Australia and Canada and around the world, only 17 were born with birth defects in the United States. Wow. wow. So she essentially prevented a tragedy, right? I she, mean, this, this could have been bad, really she bad. She became a hero and was actually presented um, with a medal by um, JFK. Wow. And was was and, and that's kind of when this kind of furor over this over, oh my God, we avoided this incredible health tragedy um, because of this single person who just happened to have a bad feeling about this at the FDA, shouldn't we be bolstering the FDA's authority? And this led a senator from Tennessee, Estes Kefauver, who was actually best known as um, the person who ran the um, anti-crime uh, committee a decade earlier. So he was, he, he was actually the one who um, lobbied against organized crime. So he was known as this kind of tough guy um, who rooted out um, crooked people um, and uh, put them in jail. So he basically used that platform to say, oh, now I'm targeting the crooked pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. and was finally able to get legislation passed that demanded not only that drugs be safe, but for the first time in 1962, that they also be effective. Mm -hmm. So imagine this, the FDA was formed in the early 1900s. It took until 1962 that a drug actually had to be shown to be effective. Yeah, that's that's an interesting concept. So going back to again something like Hamlet's wizard oil. I mean, you kind of wonder. I mean, obviously, look, it's really difficult for me to say this, especially I understand, you know, it's a hypercritical perspective because we are in 2022 and looking back, you know, 100 and something years ago. I mean, it's kind of not fair. But also it sort of makes you wonder like what was going on in people's minds at the time? Because if we're thinking about something that's effective, I get it in the short term, you're wondering, okay, you know, maybe there's some chance that this works and I need direct help now. But where was I mean, maybe this is a difficult question to ask, but I wonder where do you think society was at the time, in, in, especially when the first law came to pass, that all it really required was safety. Where were sort of where were the activists or the progressives saying like, hey, safety isn't enough. That's great that some of this stuff like won't kill us, but like, what does it actually do? Hmm. No, it's it's a fabulous question, and I think there are probably two answers to that question. The first is that we're looking at this, as you said, from our lenses in 2022, when of course you're going to have the government regulating the things that we ingest are going to be safe and effective. That wasn't always the case, and that wasn't always an assumption. Right. Um, you had the birth of marketing, particularly in the 1950s, um, with uh, the Mad Men, and there were there were advertising firms that specialized in drugs. So instead of Madison Avenue, they used to call it Medicine Avenue. <laughs> and these firms had these outrageous ads in, in journals that and in magazines that people believed, right? And they would prey on people's fears. So even with thalidomide, the ad that they showed was of um, a girl reaching in the bathroom for the medicine cabinet and pulling out a jar of thalidomide. And, and the ad's quote is basically says, well, thank God she's not reaching for a barbiturate because thalidomide is safe. So even if she ingests it by accident, she'll be okay. Mm. What? Like, that's crazy. So part of it is what we accept as normal now that, that people didn't accept as normal 
back then. And part of it is just in how we get information. I think there was a lot more trust in journals and in advertisements. And there were even ad firms for pharmaceutical companies that would deliberately place stories in magazines that looked like they were real news reports, but they were actually there to sell a drug. Mm. So I, I do think that that's part of it. And we've and, and the second aspect of it is I don't think that there was an absence of people who were advocating for drugs to be effective, but you have an incredibly strong lobbying firm on behalf of pharma. And it's always been there and it's still there. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, think I that's made it hard to pass the legislation that was finally required. So at every step of this legislation, you see the same arguments repeated. If you put this legislation in there, it's going to make it so much harder for us to develop drugs. You're not going to have any new miracle drugs that are developed to fight things like cancer or diabetes. Um, So don't put this restrictive legislation in there. And by the way, they're going to support politicians um, who aren't necessarily going to vote for legislation. Right. And, and so reading that made me think of the show Dope Sick, where uh, essentially, I mean, obviously, this is a real story. But in the show, essentially, the, um, when we're talking about like some of the data or some of the kind of studies that were cited, they weren't actually studies. So when somebody finally did the research, it was essentially like a letter that some doctor somewhere sent to the journal, and they published it as a letter from the doctor. But essentially, the way kind of uh, the Sackler family and what was it? Um, what's the name of the company that does uh, Oxycontin? Uh Purdue, there we go. Yeah, the chicken. Yeah. So <laughs> so essentially, yeah. So the way that Purdue marketed it was like, oh no. So this was, you know, this great famous study in this ex, you know, journal. But essentially there was no study in the journal. It was just some letter that some doctor wrote. And it took ages for them to track it down. That's what was so crazy. But again, it's this sort of trust and authority that well, I guess from now in our generation or even a little bit before that, sort of we're not seeing that so much. Now we're actually asking for the data. I, I just find it insane that uh, prior to uh, Kefauver's uh, contribution to uh, what led to the, the development, the further development in terms of uh, efficacy and safety uh, with the FDA, prior to that, it used to take, uh, you, you'd have 60 days uh, for the FDA to uh, review whatever uh, medicine it is that you want to market. And if they didn't even respond to it, uh, you, you just by default, you're able to then begin selling it and you didn't have to wait on their approval. Uh, whereas I believe um, after that piece of legislation, on top of also having to prove the efficacy of the drugs that you're going to market, uh, I find it interesting that they shifted from 60 days to 180 days, uh, which is which is great. That actually sounds a lot more reasonable, right? I'm, imagine uh, just not, they just didn't review what it is that you submitted. Right. And all of a sudden, by default, that's it. It's okay for the public now. It's just so wild to even think about. Like, that's so disconnected from our world today. I just can't even imagine that. Yeah. It's, you know, you're emphasizing it's, it's a great pickup from the book. You're emphasizing this tension that's always there, right? So there's this tension that we want the FDA to approve drugs quickly. So they have a clock that ticks when, uh, when some pharmaceutical company submits um any kind of um data right Mm -hmm. about their drug but at the same time we want drugs to be safe so which do you push the fda on do you push them to approve a drug quickly so we get it out to the market particularly for people who have just just desperately awful conditions like aids or cancer or do you give them the time let that clock tick a little bit longer so that they really do a deep review and make sure that the drug is safe 
And this tension never goes away, right? Particularly after the 1960s, when you have this legislation that says, okay, drugs have to be effective. And by the way, here are the clinical trials and here's the structure of them that you need to conduct to get a drug approved. So no more, as you mentioned, that you know, letter to a journal that says that um, Oxycontin is, is safe and you know, people aren't gonna get addicted to it, right? That famous letter that we've heard about. Um, that's not gonna cut it anymore. You need trials that are rigorous that the FDA can then examine and that they can finally conclude whether or not a drug is safe and effective. That's not gonna happen in 30 days or even in 180 days. It's gonna take years. Mm-hmm. So do you want those careful trials to come to fruition that's gonna take years? Or do you want to try to get drugs that have a signal that, boy, they really work well out there quicker, knowing that you're not going to have as much rigorous data supporting them? That must have been so hard, especially uh, when it came to um, the trials for uh, Avastin, right? I mean, to resolve the tension there, right? There there are people who are uh, coming with uh, testimonials that uh, it, it helped them tremendously presenting pictures, uh, anecdotes, and things of that nature. And then, but you also at the same time, you know, have to decide, is this drug actually effective? And then is it safe? Is it, uh, will it cause uh, liver damage uh, maybe to someone um, and then things of that nature? Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're bringing up a, just really a fabulous case study for all of this. The, and, and the thread of the book are these Avastin hearings. And to give a little bit of, of background, Avastin, was a wonder drug. It was born out of this incredible research from this guy named Judah Folkman, who was a surgeon at Mass General. And and, um, I did my internal medicine residency at Mass General. And even decades later, people were telling Judah Folkman stories. Mm -hmm. This guy was so focused on his research and so brilliant. And he was at the hospital all the time. You know, back in the day when he was a surgeon, you were on call every other night. So he figured, this is the anecdotal, he figured, well, why even pay for an apartment? If I'm only going to be there half the time, I might as well just sleep in the hospital. So he literally stayed in the hospital for a whole year during his internship year. <laughs> he was focused on this theory that cancers, tumors depend on a blood supply to stay alive. So if you can cut that blood supply, you've killed the tumor. <laughs> and he focused on drugs that targeted something called vascular endothelial growth factor. In other words, the thing that caused the blood vessels to grow to support the tumor. And he figured if he could get rid of that, he gets rid of the blood supply, he gets rid of the tumors. And he was he was in, in part right about that. So this drug of Vastin was born out of that theory. And in fact, um, it was used to treat colon cancer and got an FDA approval for that. And Mm -hmm. soon afterwards, it entered clinical trials to treat breast cancer, and not just any breast cancer, but metastatic breast cancer. So advanced, widely spread breast cancer. And um, one of the um, trials that that studied it was actually something sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. So it was this really high-level trial conducted around the country where women with advanced breast cancer got this drug Avastin plus a regular old chemotherapy, or they just got the regular old chemotherapy. And they were followed over time to see how long they lived. Mm -hmm. And it turns out their survival was the same if they got the Avastin and the chemo versus chemo alone. But the time that they lived without their breast cancer worsening, which is something called progression-free survival, it's a quirky concept, right? They don't live longer, 
but their breast cancer doesn't worsen as fast as other women. Hmm. Was about six months greater if they got the Avastin versus the other therapy. So the FDA recognized that this is kind of a quirky concept, this progression-free survival, and gave the drug what's called accelerated approval. And that's the FDA's mechanism for getting drugs to people quicker without all the robust data that they usually require. Mm. And it's basically like giving a drug label with an asterisk on it. And the asterisk says, okay, we're gonna approve this drug for now. It looks like preliminarily it works really well in, in people who desperately need it, but we're gonna require a follow-up study to confirm that initial benefit. Mm. And accelerated approval itself, this mechanism was born out of HIV and AIDS activism in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and it was put into place in 1992 in an act of Congress where the FDA could approve drugs quicker. And it did so at first for really mainly for HIV and AIDS indications, but very quickly that morphed into a mechanism that is primarily used in cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. So Avastin goes on the market, the so-called confirmatory studies are conducted. And when they come out, lo and behold, not only has that progression-free survival, that quirky endpoint shrunk with one study down to just a few weeks, mm -hmm. but women don't live longer. And in one of the studies, they actually seem to live shorter when they get the Avastin. Mm. So that puts the FDA in a quandary, right? They, they've approved this drug kind of in an accelerated approval mechanism, but now they have to decide, do we leave it on the market? Is the safety and efficacy still pretty well balanced or do we need to pull it from the market? Is it too toxic given the limited efficacy it has? And that was the case in 2011 when the Avastin hearings were held. Hmm. Well, yeah. And if you think about just the benchmark that they use, I mean, it seems logical because if there's a sort of slower rate of the progression of cancer, one would think there must be either, you know, benefits of well-being. So obviously now we're talking about the distinctions. Is it a better quality of life or is it a longer life, which are pretty important for the FDA? But in this case, kind of lo and behold, it was neither. And so I'm going to assume that it was shocking to a lot of people, including obviously your group. So you, you, once again, drilled right down to what the FDA focuses on. It's kind of colloquially said that the FDA approves drugs based on lives longer or lives better right. when it comes to cancer, right? If a drug shows that you extend your survival, you live longer getting it, mm. gee whiz, that's, that's kind of a no-brainer to approve it, right? Or it can show that you live better. You actually feel better while you're getting the drug. You have a better quality of life. And there are um, questionnaires um, that have been developed that are very strict in defining this. And you can actually measure this in people. Well, with Avastin, women didn't live longer and they didn't live better. The quality of life assessments were the same on both arms of the trial, whether women got Avastin or not. So they didn't live longer, they didn't live better. And the initial quirky endpoint, living without progression of tumor, actually shrank in the follow-up studies. Right. So we, so I was a member of the FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee for five years. I chaired it for two. And at one of our meetings, the FDA asked us, should Avastin be pulled from the market? This was an earlier meeting than the hearings that I talk about uh, predominantly in the book. Mm. And at the earlier meeting, we voted that Avastin should be pulled from the market. Um, women in one study were arguably dying more getting Avastin than not getting Avastin. There were excess bleeding events. 
there was liver toxicity. Uh, there were a variety of side effects that were serious and we're willing to accept serious side effects to treat a serious condition. Right. But only if the drug, the balance of safety and efficacy is in favor of efficacy. And in this case, we, we didn't think it was. So mm. we voted to remove the drug from the market. The FDA agreed and told the company, the manufacturer, Genentech, you need to pull the drug from the market. And Genentech refused. And this is part of the legislation that FDA can recommend to a company that they pull a drug from the market. And in fact, prior to this, they had done so in a few instances and the companies had capitulated. They said, yeah, we're going to pull the drug from the market. The FDA is telling us we got to pull it from the market. We better pull it from the market, right? Mm -hmm. Genentech was the first time a company said no. And you can argue about why they said no. Maybe they truly believe their drug was of value to women with breast cancer. You could also take an economic stance of it. This was a billion dollar a year drug for them. So if they refused and then the drug remained on the market for an extra eight months until the hearing occurred, you can do the math of how much money they made from the drug while it remained on the market. Right. So this led to the hearing that was the focus of the book. Right. Yeah. And it's like, if you think about just in terms of uh, kind of motives, I mean, obviously we can never say what's in another person's heart, but I mean, it's, it kind of lines up with the kind of economic factor, especially Probably. when you, right. Especially when you think of this sort of logically. So as you, you know, the sort of tussle went on and Genentech's lawyers arguing, uh, so he's essentially saying something along the lines of, well, you know, this is the best we got, right? So, you know, for decades, you know, this, uh, kind of this genetic variant of breast cancer or the negative variant of it is essentially not, has not had any significant treatments for it. And here we are with Avasta and we've created something significant, even though, yes, it's not where we want it to be. It's still pretty amazing that we even have something that's at least, you know, somewhat effective. But I remember as I'm reading this, I'm thinking like, yes, but this doesn't negate the ratio of safety and, so safety and efficacy in terms of and risk. So it doesn't necessarily make sense. So yes, I understand that there's something rather than nothing, but does that mean that something is good? Or does that mean that you should profit billions of dollars off of something that just doesn't even essentially now obviously as a follow-up study showed even really make a dent in people's lives and sorry just very yeah. quick just to add to that uh, also what were like some of the adverse effects that maybe somebody would experience uh from avastin uh, because of course it sounds promising right the right. way we're i mean of course we're discussing it but on the surface of course oh it's this is for breast cancer it may work it may not work right. but yeah what, what were those uh side effects please Oh, no, absolutely. So uh, the major one was bleeding, right? Women would actually bleed and in some cases bleed to death, right? Mm -hmm. And you're talking about bleeding in the GI tract, bleeding in the head, um, you know, less serious forms of bleeding. They would have liver toxicity. Um, so like a form of hepatitis um, and it would affect their bone marrow. Their blood counts would drop dramatically, which also sets them up for having uh, life-threatening infections. Mm -hmm. So this was not subtle stuff. Right. And it was very clear that these side effects were much higher in women who got Avastin than in women who didn't get Avastin. Right. Right. Yeah. And it must have been incredibly difficult for you. I mean, as Alan and I were talking about before this, essentially you as a doctor, I mean, you're going to deal a lot with the post hoc fallacy where a patient is saying, well, you know, I feel better, so it must be the drug. And just so for our audience, the fallacy essentially indicates that people think that just because two events are related to one another, one comes after the other, it must have been that the prior event caused the latter. Mm -hmm. But in this case, right, when you guys, and especially, and this is a guy I really want to focus on, my new hero, Rick Pazder, when you guys were hearing these women, 
women. These women essentially telling you, like, look at my life. Like, look at how great it's been. That must have been really hard as a scientist slash researcher to see because, you know, in some sense, like, I mean, they're obviously being honest, unquestionable, but it's like they're not really aware of the causes. And it's really hard to tell a person like, yeah, I know you're feeling better, but it's really not what you think it is. So it's, it's hard to hear as a humanist, right? Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we're at these hearings and um, Rick Pastor heads up the, the cancer branch of the FDA. And he was the person who basically selected me to be on, on ODAC for five years. And in the very beginning, my first meeting with him, I asked him, you know, do you ever feel bad about saying no to a drug when it could actually put a company out of business? Right. And his answer to that was, um, you know, you've got to focus on the science. You've got to separate the emotions from it. And he said, you know what? Um, investors, financial firms, they're not stupid. If there's a drug that really works, they're going to invest in the company. It's not going to go out of business. Right. It's only when the drug doesn't work that well that they can't get the funding and the companies go out of business. So he was very kind of pragmatic about it. I will tell you, um, I got so impressed with the dedication of members of the FDA and how seriously they take these deliberations and how they want to get it right. They are so dedicated to getting it right. They don't want to approve a drug that's unsafe. They don't want to deny a drug that's effective. So when you're sitting at these hearings, you know, I never served in the military. So I really looked at this as a form of my public service to my country. Mm -hmm. And you're sitting around the table here, looking at the data and thinking about um, the doctor in Ashtabula, Ohio, uh, who's going to be prescribing this drug and is she going to know the nuances of the safety and efficacy and the trials that led to it, even if it's printed on a label, that's going to lead to safe use of the drug in appropriate patients. Hmm. And you're thinking about your own patients, right? So if I'm sitting around a table, I'm thinking about how am I going to have a conversation with my own patient in my quiet clinic room when that person is sitting four feet away from me? How am I going to recommend a drug to this person and recommend it honestly that it's going to somehow benefit my patient. Mm -hmm. And if at the end of the day, at the end of these hearings, I can't think of how I would recommend a drug to one of my own patients, then I can't vote to approve a drug. Right. And this really came out in the Avastin hearings. There's an aspect of these hearings um, where the public can actually go up to a microphone and speak for a few minutes about their own experience. And mm -hmm. this is a marvelous aspect of our regulatory system. We have an open regulatory system here that's transparent where you can log in in real time and watch the ODAC hearings. And as a member of the public, you can register to testify at one of these hearings. So at the Avastin hearings, over 30 women got up to that microphone and testified to us about their experience with Avastin. And it was very moving and it was very real. So these were not abstract data points on a survival curve. These were real people talking to us about their relationship with their children and their grandchildren and trips they took. And some brought photo albums and actually held up the photo albums for us to see. So we could we, we could see what they were referring to as their quality of life. Very, very moving and very real. Mm. So when you're at these hearings, you're trying to weigh the science and the data versus women who were up testifying. And there can be a little bit of therapeutic misconception that goes on. So for example, Avastin was never given as a single drug in any of these trials. It was always right. given along with chemotherapy. Yep. But were these women alive to testify, to show us their photo albums today because they got Avastin? 
Or was it the partner chemotherapy that really got them to be alive despite the Avastin that they received? Mm -hmm. The flip side of it is that during these Avastin hearings, the FDA got up and talked about the women who couldn't be there to testify and talked about a couple of women who had died getting Avastin to make sure that we were balanced in what we were hearing about the true experience of women receiving the drug. So this is incredibly hard. And I will tell you, sitting around that table, we take it very, very seriously. You're constantly thinking about people with a terminal diagnosis who desperately need better therapies, and you're thinking about the health of the public. And out of curiosity, what would you say, I know this is addressed in the book, but it's probably good to get it out here too. Uh, what would you say to the criticism that there wasn't anybody on the ODAC um, committee who was actually like a breast cancer uh, specialist? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a real criticism. So I specialize in treating people with leukemia. Um, leukemia is a different type of cancer, but it isn't breast cancer. And um, there were six of us, six voting members on that committee, and none of us was a breast cancer doctor. One of the members had done some research in breast cancer a couple of decades earlier at the National Cancer Institute, but, but he was actually a lymphoma doctor. Mm. So on the one hand, you could say, okay, none of us was an expert in treating a woman with breast cancer. How are we qualified to make this decision? The flip side of it is that maybe it was a good thing that none of us was actually an expert. Now, how can mm. I say that? The FDA very carefully screens members of advisory committees for any semblance of a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Now that can be something obvious. I go out and I give talks about how wonderful Avastin is. Therefore I can't be on the committee because I'm paid by Genentech to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. It could be a little less obvious. Maybe I'm paid by Genentech to give talks about a, another drug that they manufacture, but it's still Genentech. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that I get paid to give talks about a drug that competes with Avastin. Therefore, it's a conflict of interest in the opposite direction. Maybe I want Avastin to do worse. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that I'm an investigator on a clinical trial that uses Avastin. So I'm not getting paid directly, but I'm participating in research with Avastin or one of Avastin's competitors or another drug that Genentech makes. Mm -hmm. So you start to get more and more distant from serious, well, I shouldn't say serious conflicts of interest, but more obvious conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. And all of those people are eliminated from the committee to avoid even a semblance of a conflict of interest in the outcome. So you have truly unbiased members of those panels. Another potential advantage is this, and this is, I think, a little more subtle. So when I was trained as an oncologist, one of my mentors, at one point I used a, a, a patient's experience to justify the treatment I wanted to give another patient. And one of my mentors pulled me aside and said, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can't use your recent experience as a true scientific endpoint to justify something else that you want to do. You've got to rely on clinical trials. So what if I were a breast cancer specialist and I just treated a woman with Avastin and she had an absolutely fabulous outcome, mm -hmm. no side effects, the tumor shrank. How do you think that would influence my vote the following week on whether to keep the drug in the market right. or flip it? What if instead this woman suffered liver failure and developed sepsis with a bacterial infection because the drug tanked her immune system? How mm -hmm. would I vote then? So maybe 
this actually prevents me from making decisions based on anecdote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're talking about the recency bias here, essentially. So it's like the thing that you remember most, the most powerful thing that happened to you recently, essentially, even though, you know, you're going to try as hard as you can to, you know, uh, kind of wade through that cognitive distortion. Essentially, we're all to some extent susceptible to it. And it's kind of hard not to look at emotional data at that mm-hmm. point. Well, that's exactly right. Um we're all human beings. We all rely on our recent experience and it colors our perceptions of future experiences. Um, one other aspect of this, and this may be even more subtle, is that as an oncologist, I always want to be able to offer my patient one more try to drug if that's what she wants. Right. So not unnecessarily, but you know, to be honest, I have a limited number of tools in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. If I can have one more tool, even if it may not work very well. Don't you think I want to offer that to a patient who desperately wants one more treatment? Absolutely. So it's this kind of natural human reaction to want to offer this one more hope. Mm-hmm. Right? But what we have to be careful about is offering hope, but not false hope. And maybe if I'm not a specialist at this FDA panel, I'll be more likely to remember not to offer false hope as one more chance at a drug that may or may not work. Right. And, you know, I was thinking essentially when we're thinking about pharmaceutical companies, I mean, their MO is obvious, it's profit. So when somebody would say something along the lines of, well, you know, they're sort of conspiring to make this happen. They know that the drug doesn't work. I would say, okay, yeah, there's a very good chance that that's true. Obviously, there's not clear evidence or direct evidence of it, but you can say it's pretty circumstantial and it makes sense. But what would the FDA's MO be to keep this drug off the market? So are we talking now essentially like a government sort of deep state type conspiracy where essentially the FDA is just working to kill people? Like, how how do people make sense of that? Like, how do people say, well, the FDA is purposely trying to kill people? Like, for what? No, I I just don't buy it. Um, The people I met at the FDA, they they really take this stuff seriously. The the FDA is basically in an impossible situation, Right. right? It's by design. Either they're not approving drugs quickly enough, or they're approving them too fast and they're not safe. And then they have to yank them. So you're always, and I emphasize this again and again in the book, you're always going to have this tension and it's probably a healthy tension to have. You always want to be pushing the FDA to approve drugs quicker and pulling them back from allowing drugs on the market that are unsafe. And we just saw this play out. The um, I, I don't know if, if, if any of your listeners were paying attention to the trial, the hearing of the drug McKenna, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, was approved to- prevent- Was it Alzheimer's? I'm sorry. The, Alzheimer, the Alzheimer's drug? No, that's Agile Helm. That's, oh, so that's another that's another case study. Oh. Um, it, it's designed to prevent preterm delivery. Mm-hmm. And hmm. the initial study it received accelerated approval, it reduced preterm delivery by 18%. It was then studied in like 7,000 women in a follow-up study that's supposedly confirmatory study, and the confirmatory study completely fell flat, didn't provide any benefit. And once again, the FDA turned to McKenna and said, we want you to pull the drug from the market. And McKenna said, no, we want to hear it. So that hearing happened. And once again, the advisory panel to the FDA voted to remove the drug from the market. This is, this is going to continue to happen. And we're going to see more and more of this in the next couple of years because the FDA essentially went on a juggernaut of approving drugs under the accelerated approval mechanism over the past five years. What that means- Mostly cancer drugs. 
It was a lot of cancer drugs, absolutely. And they were, you know, sort of under a directive to do it. The head of the FDA was Scott Gottlieb. He, in the past, had talked about believing more in a free enterprise approach to medications in this country. So get more drugs on the market, and then the market will declare which are used and which aren't used. And that's exactly what happened. Well, some of those drugs are going to be on the market, and they're going to stay on the market because they're great drugs that really help people. Mm-hmm. But a bunch of these drugs are going to be pulled. And more recently, in cancer drugs, we've seen more and more of these drugs being pulled. Wow. Oh, boy. Right. And it's also difficult to tell because if you have a drug on the market, I mean, it's really hard to tell whether it's a side effect of the drug or whether it's the cancer coming, you know, uh, affecting the person's symptoms, whether it's some other medication that they're on, et cetera. So I can imagine that if it's just sort of a market free for all, then essentially it's going to take forever for these drugs for the market, you know, to kind of cleanse them, so to speak. It's it, it, again, I'm, I just have to say, I am so impressed with the read that you guys gave to this book because like mm-hmm. I live this stuff every day. I'm sure you don't. And you have this incredible understanding of, of, of what's going on. So that's absolutely right. One of the aspects of the of, of clinical trials that I write about is just how hard it is to determine if a side effect is due to someone's underlying cancer or mm-hmm. to the drug itself. And I tell the story of a patient of mine who was actually a former boxer and he had this kind of gravelly voice like um, like Mick, Mickey from the Rocky movies, right? <laughs> and he would even literally, it, it was almost out of a movie, he would make a point to kind of jab the air a couple of times to make his point, right? He was like, he was still mm-hmm. in the rain. And um, he had leukemia and came to see me because he wanted to go on to a clinical trial. And he came specifically because he wanted to go on to a clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And we had what's called an immunotherapy that was on a clinical trial uh, for which he, he was he was eligible. And immunotherapy basically tries to harness your own immune system to attack the cancer. And in some cancers, it has honestly been wildly successful. Things like melanoma and lymphoma, uh, even lung cancer, it, it, it's worked incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Not so much in, in the leukemias that I treat. So he went on to this trial, went into the hospital and had side effect after side effect after side effect. And the poor guy, as tough as he was, one day I walked into his room, he couldn't even lift his arms from the bed because his shoulders were in so much pain. And this Mm -hmm. is a guy who has a pain tolerance that would slay any of the three of us, right? Mm -hmm. That's how painful it was for him. But then other things would happen. And, you know, I'm the one as the investigator on the trial who has to decide whether these side effects are attributable to his underlying leukemia or is it due to the drug? Mm. So for example, um, the pain that he had in his shoulders, right? I was pretty sure that was due to the drug mm-hmm. because leukemia itself doesn't cause that kind of pain like he had. And it was a known side effect of the drug. Mm-hmm. So I could attribute that as probably related to the drug. Mm. But then his platelets went low. Okay, did his platelets go low because of the leukemia which causes platelets to go low? Or mm. did they go lower than they should have because of the drug? impossible mm-hmm. to tell. He started mm-hmm. out with a very low platelet count. Mm-hmm. Then he had an episode of bleeding. Well, was the bleeding due to the drug? It was due to the low platelets. Mm-hmm. The low platelets may have been due to the drug, but then can I say the bleeding is due to the drug? Mm-hmm. So you go through this with every single side effect a person has. And anytime that you say something is possibly related to a drug, it has the potential of winding up on that drug's label. Right. And that's why we actually say yeah, look at a product label when it's in the packaging. But those of us who kind of do this every day don't believe every side effect we see in that label because we realize some of them were correctly attributed to a drug and some were incorrectly attributed to a drug. 
Right. So they were essentially from either the illness or some other drug elsewhere. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. Or, or not even the primary illness, but maybe another illness. So for example, if a, if a person has bad heart disease, Mm -hmm. goes on to a clinical trial of drug and then has a heart attack, would you say that the heart attack is due to the underlying heart disease or could the drug have caused the heart attack? So that's right. So side effects that happen on a clinical trial is sometimes it's very challenging to decide whether a drug caused them or they just would have happened anyway. All right. Well, all right. So then, yeah. And then the trial, right? So can you kind of guide us through it and what happens in it? Because I mean, this is obviously the point of the book and it's also the most fascinating part because as essentially the kind of FDA was tussling with Genentech's lawyers and even a, a doctor, a physician, which really shocked me, who was actually a member of the FDA before and her specious arguments were amazing, especially for somebody who's a clinician. So can you guide us through that? What's essentially now as the trial is winding down, what's that like for you guys? And essentially what are the details of it? Yeah, so we arrived at the FDA headquarters, just like we usually do on a shuttle from a nondescript um, hotel uh, nearby. And and you'll be happy to know that as a taxpayer, um, our overnight hotel stay (laughs) is not luxurious. (laughs) (laughs) So they bring us to the FDA headquarters, but instead of going through the main door, they take us through a side entrance. And as we're passing, we see all these protesters outside, Mm -hmm. all of them wearing pink shirts, um, a couple of them with a megaphone. um, one of them even singing and strumming on his guitar. Uh, and, and we realize this is going to be a big deal. So we go through security, the FDA, you've got to go through security, just like you go through airport security and um, go to the great room, which is the room at the FDA where these hearings are held and open the door. And it is pandemonium. The mm-hmm. place is packed to the gills. People are talking loudly and there's a scrum of photographers and cameramen sitting around the table where we would sit. So it literally looks straight out of a movie, like it is a court scene. And the trial is going to be argued between Genentech's lawyers and the FDA's lawyers. And it happens in an organized sequence. So FDA gets up and they make their case. And their case was basically that we've seen all the data before. The initial clinical trial showed this progression-free survival advantage of six months for a vast, and the subsequent trials fell flat. There are all these toxicities to the drug and um, we, we shouldn't keep it on the market anymore. It's not safe and it's not effective. And I remember there was even one telling point where somebody asked the member of the FDA, so are you saying that right now Avastin's drug label is wrong? Mm-hmm. And the FDA said, yes, right now, as of this date, that drug label is wrong. It's inaccurate. It doesn't reflect the toxicities well enough. Wow. FDA admitting that a drug label that could be used that day was was wrong. Mm-hmm. Then um, we can ask questions of the FDA to try to clarify what you know what they're getting at and, and how they're thinking. And then it's the company's turn to testify. So they got up and testified and made their case that the drug actually was effective. And even though it's this quirky endpoint, it showed that it still had an advantage with this quirky endpoint, albeit not as much as the original trial in the subsequent trials. And we shouldn't believe the data that showed that women didn't live as long. And here are the problems with these trials. And guess what? The company had another trial that they wanted to run that really was going to show how great Avastin was. So just keep the drug on the market long enough so they can conduct this this additional trial. And in my mind, I think one of the turning points where we then get to ask questions of the company Mm. is one of us was, was arguing the point about 
whether or not the trial was successful. And a statistician for the company got up and said, absolutely, the trial was successful. It led to its endpoint. The drug was approved. And I thought to myself, no, that's not <laughs> the end point. The end point is that women live longer. Women live better. It makes their lives better, mm -hmm. right? It was so clear that that statistician was in this bubble of what success, how success was defined, right? Success mm -hmm. from a company's perspective was drug gets approved, they make money, stockholders are happy, right. right? Success for the rest of the world is people are cured of their disease. People live longer. Mm -hmm. So this went on for a day and a half. Um, women testified during this. They actually testified on the first day, which was very, very moving. I mean, you know, you felt like you were in that room for 12 hours listening to women, these women testify for a couple of hours because of what they said was so moving. And then it came time for the vote. And again, this is very public. So we have microphones in front of us and there are buttons on them that say um, yes, no, or abstain. Mm -hmm. So are you going to agree with this? Are you going to disagree? Or are you going to just abstain from your vote? And then after we voted, there's a pause as they tally the votes and they put them all up on these huge screens around the room with the vote is. And our vote was to remove Avastin from the market. Mm. But it doesn't end there. Remember, this is an open, transparent process in the US. They then go around the room to every single person who voted and said, justify your vote publicly. Why did you vote the way you did? Wow. So we did that. And then as they're adjourning, we stand up to leave and we're rushed by the audience um, who go around the, the, the rope cordons that separate the spectators from, from the folks participating in the hearing and come running up to us and, and um, you know, are very upset. I mean, they're, you know, a, a lot of the women were shouting at us. One of the members of our group um, was actually a breast cancer survivor, one of the voting members, and they shouted at her, we hope your breast cancer returns so you know how we feel. And it was very, extremely emotional. So armed security rushed up to us to kind of form a wall and then um, escorted us out of the FDA headquarters through a, a back entrance where there were um, limousines waiting, tinted windows, engines running, uh, like I said, right out of the movies to whisk us away. Mm. Yeah. And just even thinking about uh, some of the arguments that were presented. Uh, so I remember one of them with the, the major argument was essentially in Europe, this, you know, it's legal, it's approved. So I'm now kind of thinking about it because you didn't really necessarily, which is okay. You didn't touch on it in your book, but why do you think that? Like, why do you think in this case, the FDA said, okay, hey, no, this isn't going to work because obviously when you're looking at the kind of data and you're looking at the picture or the cost benefit ratio, it just doesn't work in the favor of patients. But how come you think in Europe, if that wasn't the case in many places. Yeah. Um, so it is true that a regular one regulatory one country's regulatory body does not have to listen to another country's regulatory body. So if you've ever heard somebody say, well, I had to go to Europe because that's where I could get this drug. And you thought to yourself, that's nuts. This is the US. We have all the drugs. As it turns <laughs> out, we don't. They're right. There are some drugs that are approved in Europe that aren't approved here. There are some drugs that are approved here that are not approved in Europe. <laughs> some of it is that I honestly think if it's a close call, one body may say yes, one body may say no. Mm -hmm. And I think for drugs like this, it's a close call when it's based on a quirky endpoint like progression-free survival. Right. Another aspect to it is that in different parts of the country, they actually consider the cost of the drug. Mm -hmm. So think about this. In the US, when we approve a drug, we never consider the cost. 
In fact, when we're at these FDA meetings, if somebody raises the cost and what price it might be, an FDA member will very quickly jump in and say, we do not consider costs at FDA hearings. That's something that Medicare, CMS considers. It's not something the FDA considers. Mm -hmm. In parts of Europe, it's different. They actually, if they look at the relative balance of safety and efficacy and then the cost, then they think this isn't cost effective, they will, they will not approve a drug. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is going to be a silly question, but I do think it's worth asking. So why wouldn't the FDA consider costs? Why wouldn't that be important? It's not a silly question. Um, I think they want to focus, and this is me speculating. I think they mm -hmm. want to focus on the science and because it's different government bodies that think about cost versus the science. So mm -hmm. there is a certain purity to voting on whether or not to approve a drug just based on the data from clinical trials and not considering costs. Right. On the other hand, drug costs are the largest expense that we have in U.S. healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of crazy that we're not considering costs, particularly when you have um, drugs that may not work as well. And there have been proposals that say, well, you should base the cost on how much longer a person lives. Right. If you have a drug where somebody doesn't live any longer, it shouldn't cost very much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's actually interesting because I guess an argument could be made. Well, if this drug costs a dollar, I mean, you know, who's it really harming? Right, sure. right. It's it's mm -hmm. a buck. Sure, I'll spend it on a Vastin. We'll see if mm -hmm. it works here. Yeah, but that's not part of it at all. And, um, you know, when costs are raised directly to a company at an FDA proceeding, drug companies will get pretty squirrely about that. Oh, we haven't really thought about that yet. Baloney, you haven't thought about that. You thought about mm -hmm. that from day one, right? <laughs> Right. And then so, I mean, we don't have to go through all of them, but can we talk about some of the specious arguments that Genentech made? Because those were hilarious. Again, from somebody who essentially from somebody who is a clinician, it was really incredible how they pretty much used all of the tools of the tricks of the trade, essentially, how they kind of went into their toolbox and sort of deflected, obviously evaded, uh, found ways to misconstrue and misrepresent the data. Really, really amazing stuff. And honestly, I could see from a person just like myself, I'm not a statistician. I could see a person, just any normal person looking at this and going, wow, they're making some really great points here. Well, one of my favorite ones was there was a point that was made um, about how many women benefited from Avastin. And what, what the person at Genentech did was multiply the number of women who were treated. So on the trial, you had a few hundred women who were treated and you know it led to uh, a benefit in this number of women. And what she did was say, okay, well, if you had 10,000 women who were treated, this many would benefit. So mm -hmm. gee, that's a huge number of women who would benefit. Therefore, we should approve the, the Avastin drug. And right. the point mm -hmm. I make in the, in the book is that, okay, well, let's use that same argument on the clinical trial where women lived for a shorter amount of time when they got Avastin. If you had 10,000 women on that trial, gee, this many more women would have died getting Avastin. So you would see these kind of tricks of statistics. And that's one of the reasons why there's always a statistician who sits on the FDA panel as well, right? So you can fight fire with fire. Right. But, you know, a point I make in the book is that when a company starts to spin the data, which I list as one of the, the you know, seven deadly sins, right? If you try to spin the data, if you try to interpret it in a goofy way, um, it, it always plays badly for companies because part of, the FDA's reaction to a company, and certainly part of the reaction of an FDA committee to a company is, do we trust them, right? They're presenting all these data to us. Do we trust how they're using the data? Are they taking the data 
just presenting them as they are, not trying to spin them and letting the data speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And the more they spin, the more you realize there aren't as much data supporting the drug. Right. And it's so fascinating, again, because if you're putting this in an infomercial, uh, infomercial or something along those lines, I mean, it would make a ton of sense because, I mean, you're just appealing to the public. Most of us watching that stuff are going to be like, okay, wow, this sounds legitimate. And I mean, these are, you know, qualified people. They're statisticians, they're doctors, there's hematologists, specialists, etc. Mm-hmm. So you would think the data makes sense. Why would they lie? I mean, these are credentialed people and they could lose their licenses. But no, but then when you put them in front of something like the FDA, you get these, obviously, it could have been it isn't a great story, but it sounds like a great story just because you have somebody like Rick, Rick Pazder kind of laughing his ass off, like shaking his head, wondering, like, how are these people doing this? Mm. Yeah, he's um, it, 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 it's really funny. I do mention his reactions there because he's he's pretty honest with them. Right. And you can tell there are times when one of us asks a question and he like throws his arms up like this is what we've been saying to them all this time. Right. Why aren't they listening? Right. Um, and my, my favorite Rick Pazder story is when there was a. A committee meeting to debate a prostate cancer drug, and these two urologists who were these you know very famous professors of urology, just like you could tell, didn't like each other and were lighting into each other and arguing, and the the ODAC chair, not me at the time, lost control of the meeting. So Rick just stood up and barked at them and said, "Okay, you two, quiet." He said, turned to someone else at the FDA. He said, "Could you bring in a couple of chairs from the hallway?" And this person dutifully brought the chairs in, sat them down and said to the two urologists, you two, you sit in those chairs. And if you get out of that chair, you're going to leave this room. So he basically (laughs) treated them like kindergartners, putting them in a timeout. So yeah, he's, he's a remarkable guy. He's very, very bright, very savvy. And he is quite pragmatic as he views um, drugs coming before him for approval. Right. And I would argue, honestly, all of you, all of you on that panel were essentially remarkable people because for you 100%. guys, yeah, for you guys to literally just sit through all of that and then obviously to kind of in some ways worry for your safety because, you know, uh, obviously, uh, essentially your numbers were uh, were kind of bombarded with phone calls and, you know, maybe even had some stalkers, you know, who knows. Uh, but essentially, it's a difficult period for any of us to be to go through. And I mean, I can't even imagine having gone through that. So it was just really amazing. Obviously, you, Rick, and just everybody else on that panel. I mean, thank you. No, gee. Well, I, you know, I had the greatest respect, honestly, for the women who got up and testified. Because, you know, if you think about it, I'm a, I'm an academic, I go to meetings, I give talks all the time. Um, It's kind of part of my job description. But these women aren't used to going up in front of an FDA panel in a packed room with a, you know, at times hostile environment, and telling their personal stories. So, you know, for, honestly, my perspective is they are the real heroes of those proceedings. They went up and they they talked about what they believed in and they did it bravely. I love it. And so as we wrap up, I want to end off with a quote from Mikhail's book. So Mikhail wrote, was the FDA's decision to revoke Avastin's breast cancer approval the ultimate demonstration of how the FDA system system of checks and balances really works or in how it doesn't? I believe it actually shows that our drug regulatory structure forged from tragedy and beholden to a myriad of medical, political, economic, and societal pressures functions well. And the key to its success is the tension between the agency and the many people to whom it must answer. This tension between getting patients access to drug drugs for life-threatening conditions as quickly as possible and ensuring the safety, 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 and efficacy of those drugs will never go away. This human need to offer succor to dying patients in the form of a medication that has a chance of working, no matter how small, if only for a short period of time, and to offer some kind of hope, but not false hope, will never go away. 
This drive to manufacture the drugs that patients need, this moral, scientific, and financial imperative to rid humankind of disease will never go away, which is a good thing. And perhaps the only way we'll be, we will be able to continue to improve on the safety and efficacy of the drugs that patients need. Phenomenal writing. Just, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love this book. One of my favorites of the year, Mikhail. So Same. thank you so much for coming on. And one last thing before we wrap up, Alan, final questions. You know what sucks? I actually have a million and one more <laughs> questions for you. Uh, we just don't actually have the time, but uh, I suppose I'll end it off with this. Um, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work and, and of course, buy the book, uh, wh where can we do that? So I always recommend people go to their independent booksellers uh, here in Miami. That's Books and Books. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my uh, number one choice. Uh, the book is also available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you buy books. And I am on Twitter uh, at Mikhail Sekaris. Uh, I love thank it. You, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was so much fun to be here. Absolutely. Thank you, so thank you again on. so much for coming on. We love the book and we obviously appreciate it. All right. That was really cool. That was epic, man. All right, everyone. Uh, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. On Instagram and Facebook, we're at Seize the Moment Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. On YouTube, uh, like, subscribe. Hit the bell. The bell. And thank you so much for watching and see you next time.